Just so you know, uh, they start at the time when he was talking. So roll that back and give me my time back. I'd like to have that. So anyway, um, so what you might not know is that I'm a teacher. Um, I'm a principal in a public elementary school. Um, spiritually, I got saved in 1993 at college, uh, November 93. And so I've been running with Jesus for about 30 years, and that's been a really good time. Um, as Pastor Don shared, he did come to me a while back, and he said, hey, would you like to uh, try and do a, a teaching on a Sunday? And I said, yeah. And I said, what's the topic? And he said, well, you, you can pick it. And um, he goes, it, that's a softball. Like, you, you know, whatever you want to pick. And that was the term he used. That's a softball, like whatever. And what he doesn't know is just how bad I am at softball. Um, my father-in-law... He coaches, and he made me play for him a couple of times, always in right field, you know, always out there just trying to keep me from damaging the team. So hopefully this goes a little bit better. Um, as I was praying and thinking about what to share with you guys, um, I was thinking that I really wanted to share something practical, something daily, something needed, uh, something that's affected my life and, and really changed me um, in a way that matters to me. And so what rose up in my heart was a focus on some of the common disciplines um, of uh, serving God, things that have significantly affected me over the last couple months and years. Um, God was talking to me in small groups. He was talking to me through Christian fellowship. He was talking to me in my quiet time about these things. Um, and so I just kind of leaned on them because they're, they're something that I think about every day. And let me just back up. Um, I shared that I got saved in 93. I met Jesus in a really fun way. It was really cool. Um, but I did not for a long time have a whole lot of daily peace in my life. I didn't really navigate with a lot of joy in my life. Um, and that's not even reasonable because I had a great job. I mean, some people aren't built for kids, but I taught kids, little kids, and they're the happiest people on earth right? Like you can, you can say, hey, knock that off. And they'll be like, oh, okay. And then they'll just go back to smiling and doing something. It's a great job, right? I worked with great people. I have a wonderful wife and I have four kids who are pretty decent. They're, they're good. So things were going good. I'm in a great church, right? But in truth, if I was really being honest and kind of like reflecting, I was still a bit miserable. Like I didn't want to hang out with me because I felt like I was a bit of a serial uh, complainer. I really struggled with how to walk through daily life. And, um, you know, th the truth was there was just something that was going on, something that was wrong. And I knew I know Jesus. I knew I was born again, right? I knew I had access. I know my future is extremely bright. But like right here, right now, I was struggling with these types of things, right? And I mean, I'm not the only person that deals with that. So sin is real. It's not just like some kind of a metaphysical concept, right? Sin is real. Um, it's, it's an enormous impact on all of us. It affects uh, every relationship you'll ever have. It affects how you think about yourself. And then it goes beyond that, right? It affects global catastrophes like uh, what's happening in Turkey with the, the horrible things that are happening there or Malawi like we just read or Ukraine, right? So all of these, these things that are created by sin, this fear, like these self-doubts that we deal with internally, um, all of those things are still here even though we have this, this amazing and wonderful relationship with Jesus. And so what I'm struggling with uh, is how do I begin to like 
get out of this because Jesus said some really wild things about what life is like and how we live. And I want to live like that rather than kind of being stuck in this place I'm at where, where things are just going rough all the time. I, I just didn't want to be content in that spot. Um, so what I want to do today is just kind of root around in a very familiar passage, see if maybe as we root around in that, that God might jiggle something like loose for you in your, in your thinking, in your heart, where he might be able to help you progress in this. So what we're going to do is stay in Philippians 4 today, and we're going we're gonna to go at something that Paul said in Philippians 4 that just always perplexed me, but I wanted. So he said something in Philippians 4 verse 11 that might also agitate you. It, it might be a wonderful promise, but based on where you're at right now today, it might, it might be a little bit agitating to you. He said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You know, when I was young and I read to be content, what I read was, I've learned in whatever situation I, I'm in to just chill for a little bit and then work, get out of it into a really good situation. But that's really not really what contentment is. Contentment is not be quiet because I'll get peace in the future. Contentment is peace right now in the middle of the storm, right? And this is something that Paul definitely walked in, definitely lived in. And so we want to we study a little bit about this. So what we're going to look at today is, and the, the title of the sermon is Pursuing Peace. And we're going to back up a little bit from Philippians 4 verse 11 into Philippians 4 verses 4 through 9. We're going to go ahead and read this together and then we'll pause and pray. Well, I cannot read that. Look at that. There's no chance. I'm going to turn around. Don't, don't judge me. Nope, not going to read it there either, folks. That's too high. Give me a second. I'm new at this. You're good. Here we go. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We love you. And I thank you, Father, that you are here. You didn't save us and then back up or look away. You saved us and then you stay right here. You saved us because you love us, and then you gave us everything we need to live a contented life in Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray for your understanding and revelation for all of us. I, I just know that you're a teacher. It's what you do is you help us to understand things that are hard for us to understand, and you're a patient teacher. So I look forward to how you're going to show us your love today in the name of Jesus. Amen.
All right. Well, if you don't know anything about Philippians, um, it was written by Paul. You know Paul's name when he uh, first met the Lord, his name was? Good, so you know it. Right. And you know that when Paul met the Lord, he met him in this blinding vision while Paul was on a reverse missions trip to spread the ungospel all around the world. That was his purpose. Like he lived his life to undo missions things and ungospelize the world, right? He was trying to do everything but the gospel. Ironic that he did then become the number one missionary out there and, and have to spread the gospel all over the place. Wonderful. But he meets Jesus and then fast forward, I don't know how many years, but quite a few years later, at the time this scripture that we just read is being written, this same Paul, he's sitting in a prison in Rome. And he's writing a letter to believers in Philippi in a church that he started, I don't know how many years earlier, but it was quite a few years earlier. Paul had the most difficult life. His life was marked by words spoken by the Lord. This is, this is the words that were spoken over Paul's life. I mean, we all want words like spoken over our life. Like, you're going to be great. You're going to go on and do great things. And the words spoken over Paul's life were kind of like that, but they also said, Jesus said, he's going to suffer so much for my name's sake. Like, those are the words spoken over Paul's life. He is going to like, yeah, Wow. And like, that's Paul's life, right? And if you look through what the scripture says and you look at Paul's summary, this is a guy that if you studied it all, he was whipped how many times? Anybody know? Hold up your hands if you know how many times he was whipped. On, not like, like the, he was whipped on five occasions. He was whipped on five different occasions. And that wasn't like that was an occasion. Each occasion, according to his counting, was 39 times, that's about 295 whips if I count that correctly. He was whipped on five occasions. How many times was he beaten with rods? How many times have you been beaten with rods? Show me on your hand how many times you've been beaten with rods. Yeah, and he was beaten with rods three times, three times. How many times have you been stoned? No, not that kind. How many times have you been stoned with a rock? How many times have you been stoned with a rock? Right? He was stoned one time, which is pretty much enough for me, and, and he was stoned and then unconscious, dragged out of the city and left for dead, right? This guy's known some torture. On top of that, friends have left him. He's arrested. He's in prison all the time. He's got a tough life, and yet we find him writing this text behind us, rejoice in the Lord always, right? And he's talking and instructing us. This is for us. How do I get rid of this anxiety I'm feeling? How do I find joy right now where I'm at? How do I walk in a peace that's bigger than human peace? Because I'm struggling with that. And I think he knows because it's probably fair to say that he went through more than you and I went through. Now, before we start to unpack what he's written here, I do, I do want to back up. Because I think Paul laid a good foundation for us to understand this in Philippians again. In verse uh, 2, 12, and 13. So I want to just read that with you just to kind of help us lay a foundation. Because one thing God doesn't say is, I did all the work, now you fix it and make it, make it work for you. That's not the kind of love or the kind of Lord we have, right? So here's what he says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is the part we really need to hear. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul's not gonna give us this advice in a way that would make us think we're doing it on our own. He's giving it in light of the fact that there's a God who dwells inside of us, who's going to help us and encourage us with every aspect that he's calling us to do in obedience to him. And so as we listen to these things, these pieces of advice uh, that Paul is, is giving to us, we wanna make sure and that we're hearing it in light of the God of grace who lives in us and gives us that strength. So we're going to start by unpacking uh, verses four, uh, chapter four, verses four and five. And here's what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Sometimes we read something so quickly that we often lose what's being said. I read this, and here's what I kind, of, I kind of heard for a very, very long time. Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. And you probably heard what I pulled out of that, right? Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. But that's really blind optimism, right? And optimism is not enough for a human heart to hold on to and find hope in. So, so he's not calling us to that kind of life. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, rejoice. Then he says, the Lord is at hand. He uses this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, three times in the book, in the letter to the Philippian church. And he's not just throwing in that phrase, like maybe like a, a high school kid would, like, well, I gotta reach my word limit to get this letter done and get it out to people, and this is gonna help me if I add these three words in a couple times. It really stretches the phrase right? And he's also not adding it in like, um, oh man, I'm at this point where I need a name of God. Hey, Timothy, why don't you shake up that bag of, bag of God names we have and pull one out and tell me, oh, you got in the Lord this time. All right. So hey, rejoice in the Lord. That sounds really catchy. I love it. But what happens is we kind of read and reread and reread things so many times that we miss the power in the words that are there and because we miss the power, then we miss the practice, right? We don't have the power, we don't have the understanding, we miss the practice of the words. I think that, that phrase in there, in the Lord, is probably one of the most key phrases we need to focus on. That is the part that fills the rejoicing part with, with understanding. We're not just rejoicing, we're rejoicing in the Lord. So let's look at back a little bit more at how Paul's, Paul's life was affected by this word, Lord. You remember in Acts 9, that's, that's where you find the story of Paul's conversion, where Paul met the Lord. And if you remember, he's on the road to Damascus. I told you he's spreading the young gospel. He's putting Christians in jail, and he's traveling down the road, and he's probably like, man, I'm going to put so many Christians in jail. I don't know how Paul thought, but maybe that was it. Like, man, I can't wait. I'm just going to terrorize this church. It, you know, I don't know how he, how he worked through that, but it might have been something like that. And then you know the story that all of a sudden he's got this light that is blinding, and it's all around him, right? Suddenly, light. And then he hears a voice coming out of the light. And he says something. Paul responds. He says, who are you, Lord? 
Who are you, Lord? Here's, here's the interesting thing. He doesn't know that it's Jesus. He doesn't know at all that it's Jesus. He knows that uh, there's a huge light in front of me. I can't see really well right now. Um, I'm hearing a voice. This voice, it actually knows my name. So there's something here in front of me blinding me that's Lord, right? So he is understanding this phrase, Lord. And I think we all understand, like, Lord is power, right? Lord is greatness and goodness. And then he says, who are you, right? He has no idea, but he hears that the Lord answer, it's me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. So he puts, now Paul puts Jesus, who he saw in Jerusalem, he has to take Jesus, who he, he saw on the cross, most likely. He saw him. He was probably somewhere near when Jesus was going through the trial, right? He has this destroyed image of Jesus. I mean, who is Jesus in Paul up till this second in his life? Who is Jesus to Paul but this horrible idea of a person who deserved to be crucified? And now he's got this Lord and Jesus, and he's got to put this together. So what does he do? He doesn't eat or drink for the next three days. That's what he does. See, he's not like living in America where he understands this, where this is just normal, like, oh yeah, I've heard of Jesus before. He's living in a time where this is being, being lived out and defined in front of him, right? And this messes with his heart because Though Paul was messed up, he loved God. He was killing people because he thought he was serving God. He was giving everything, and in a flash, Jesus messes that all up, and he says, I, the weak one, the one that you saw killed, I'm alive, and I'm Lord, and that's crazy imbalance for him. So sinful humans have a hard time understanding Jesus's lordship. I think it would be a lot easier if he was Lord the way we would expect him to be Lord. We could kind of put that into our brain, but Jesus as Lord is a very different thing. See, as sinful as we are, we are all born into this world thinking that we are Lord. We think we're in charge and we believe we know best. And then we meet Jesus and he spends our lifetime reteaching us what lordship really is, right? And he defines it in such a different way. Paul, though, wasn't the only one who struggled with this. In fact, everybody in Scripture struggled with this. But just to, to pinpoint, Jonah struggled with this. Jo like, Jonah was told to do something, and his response is no. You don't say no unless you don't understand who the Lord is, right? I mean, this goes from Jonah down to Martha, who's, who's preparing a dinner, and she goes to Jesus in Luke 10, and she's anxious because she is the Lord of this big meal, and she needs Jesus to change what's going on so that he can help her accomplish what she needs to accomplish because she is the Lord, right? And Jesus corrects her, and he says, like, when we try to be Lord, we get anxious because we are not big enough to be Lord, so that it leads to our own anxiety, right? Trying to be in control of something we're not in control of at all leads to human anxiety, and yet we all do it all the time. And we don't just think we're Lord, but we get confused, like, like maybe, maybe I'm not Lord, but maybe my job's Lord, 
I need that job. If I don't have that job, things are going to fall apart. Can you hear the anxiety? Right? That's the job I have to have, right? And so, or my friends, if I don't have those friends, I mean, I have to have them. Like, I would be alone. What would I do? And we start to make compromises for those things as Lord because that's sinful human nature. That's how we work as sinful people, right? Even that, when I was young, young, little, my first understanding of Lord was my dad, right? Dad said, do it. He was Lord. Dad was Lord. And when dad was out of the house, my crazy brother Joe was Lord, and I listened to him all the time, right? That's just how it works in that we don't understand in any way naturally that Jesus is Lord. And then even if we do, do we understand really what it means that Jesus is Lord? In Luke 10, we hear about Martha correcting correcting uh, Jesus. And we hear Jesus responding to her and saying, Martha, you're anxious about many things, right? And he says, Mary chose the one thing. I want you to notice that Jesus's lordship, what it does next. When Jesus is Lord, he's different, right? He doesn't say, Martha, sit down. He never says that. And that's kind of also a thing that we think he should do at times is be like, hey, sit down, but he's not. See, Jesus is an inviting Lord. He, he brings us, he invites us to come to the table, right? He, he never once told Martha to sit down. He just said, Mary's chosen the better thing. That won't be taken from her. Do you wonder what Martha did after that? Because I'm a little curious. I really, really, really hope she sat down and didn't huff into the kitchen and try to make the meal on her own. <clears throat> So back to Paul in that jail, in the uh, letter to the Philippians. He's sitting in that Roman jail writing that letter, and I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, when I get out of here, I am going to rejoice. He doesn't say, I'm rejoicing because someday I'm going to get out of this jail and I'll be able to see you. No, he just says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In fact, He's in that moment, and he's finding things to rejoice in. If you go to Philippians 1.12, he's actually taking his time while he's in that jail to reflect on what is God doing. I'm sitting in a jail. What's God doing right now? And here's what he wrote in the letter. I want you to know, brothers, he sounds so optimistic. It strikes me as funny. Uh, this was Tucker when we were growing up, he was, or when he was growing up. He was just, so, sometimes he was just so optimistic, it struck me as weird. You got Paul, <laughs> I could tell you a story, but I'm going to save you from that. We got Paul saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. <laughs> you're like, Paul, you're in a prison, just, it's okay, be upset. And he's like, N absolutely not. Rejoice in the Lord. That's how, that's how my soul is now turned, right? I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, right? Like his whole life is focused on the one thing. And so his condition doesn't really matter as long as Jesus is Lord and that's where the attention is. And so that's where his satisfaction is ultimately, not in getting what he wants, but in making sure that he is honoring the Lord and rejoicing. So how would this look for all of us? Because we're not sitting in a jail. 
right? Um, some of us uh, were in nice homes. You might have a really dependable job. Um, but I know that your life still has a bit of a mess in it. So, because you're human, sorry, I don't mean to judge you, but you're human and you're still walking through this. So, what are some of these things where we might actually apply this rejoice in the Lord concept? Um, I'll tell you one place I, I apply it. On Monday mornings in my car ride to work, I catch myself and I start rejoicing right there. But, let me give you a couple examples of ways in prayer that you might talk with God in a way that honors his lordship. You might say, Lord, you designed me. You planned out my days. You know where I am, and you've provided what I need. That's rejoicing in God, right? That's rejoicing in the Lord. Lord, living for you in school is sometimes so difficult. My friends pull me different ways, but you have me there, and because you're Lord, you know what I'm doing. You know what you're doing, right? It shows reliance on and honor for the Lord, Back in December 22, uh, just a several months ago, we had a day where I got to really practice rejoicing in the Lord. Um, we have four cars, and on that day, three of the four of them broke down. I know, right? In this order, in this order, it was really great. I, I walk out, uh, I think one of my kids maybe was going to the van that morning. They go out, and they see that the van tire is flat. Not a big deal, right? Not a big deal at all. So I'm like, well, we got to get, get it patched up. So I take the tire, I take it to the uh, auto mechanic, and I say, could you patch this? And he says, well, um, let me look at it. He finds out that it's dry rotted, right? And if you know anything about cars, well, if it's dry rotted, it can't be patched. And so um, you don't also, you don't get one tire replaced at a time. That's not good practice. You get two tires replaced. So now I'm like, well, surprise, surprise. We got a morning where I got to get two tires replaced. That's about $500. Whew, okay, you know, it has to happen. So I take the tires, I have both of the tires, um, the car is up on jacks in the driveway, and I take those tires from the van and I put them in my Highlander, right? Now, pause that for one second. Lucy has the Civic down at Target. She goes into the store, she comes out, and the car won't start. So she calls me and she says, hey, the Civic is, um, the battery's dead. And I'm like, oh, God, you left the lights on. Not a big deal, not a big deal at that point. Well, my father-in-law, who made me play softball, he's also a really wonderful guy. He comes over and he charges her battery. And I say to Lucy, you know, run it up to Advanced Auto. They'll test it for you for sure. They'll let you know if the problem's there. And so as she's doing that, I'm picking up the tires there in my car. She gives me a call. I'm at Advanced Auto and um, I got to buy a new battery, right? And I'm like, okay, uh, so go ahead and do that. I'm thinking she's going to buy the basic model, right? And she didn't buy the basic model. So now that's several hundred more dollars out. And I'm like, oh, what a day, what a day. This is crazy. And then, I, remember, I have the, the broken down tires in the back of my car that I have to get replaced. So I'm driving them up, them up, to, advan up to Mr. Tire. And I drop them off at Mr. Tire. And that's just fine. You know, I, I can deal with these things. And um, as I'm backing out of Mr. Tire, they have this ridiculous yellow steel pole outside of the store. Who puts that pole there? I don't know. But I'm backing out and I just run my front bumper right off of that pole and your bump it just peels my whole front bumper off on the ground. It's just laying on the ground. I've never seen that in my life, right? 
So I get out of my car, and my car looked ridiculous. It looked so ridiculous. And I'm looking at the bumper on the ground, and in my head, I'm thinking, two tires, battery. And I just did one of these, and I just had to pause. Didn't cry. I didn't get upset. But see, prior to that, I had been practicing his lordship, right? His understanding, his knowledge of everything always. He knew a long time ago before I was born that we were going to have two flat tires and a battery die and I was going to be a moron and peel the bumper off the front of my car. He knew all that. So this is actually an occasion for God's kindness and for me to practice what it means to just love and trust God. And so I didn't get frantic. I didn't get mad. I didn't throw a tantrum. That's not because I'm great. It's because he is so wonderful. It's because he's so good that I didn't have to really worry about it right? So I threw the bumper now in my car because the tires were no longer there. And I took my car back home and I parked it uh, alongside the car that was on jacks. And, and my kids are like, yeah, it looks like a salvage yard at our house. That's ridiculous. So everything worked out. But I only say that to say that day my prayer was, Lord, three of my four cars are broken down. You knew that would happen. And thank you for your provision already. So God's lordship is, um, it's extensive, right? Sometimes we worry about things like um, marriage, right? And we're struggling with marriage. I thought this might be a way that you might work that. Lord, my husband is so unhappy. And you know that. You know that. I'm, I'm demonstrating his lordship. It can be difficult to figure out, Lord, how to be. But you are Lord. And you know how to help me. My care is your role. You are forming my character. And those types of comments rejoice in his lordship in the middle of challenging marriage situations. Or maybe you're looking at a, a, a child-parent relationship, right? And you might say something like, Lord, I don't know where my child is, but you do. And I was thinking it might even change this way. Instead of my child, because that demonstrates some type of understanding, what if you were to say, Lord, I don't know where this child is that you, you gave me and you love but you do, right? Even in that, you're acknowledging who the Lord is so that when you get into those situations, you're framing your life around his lordship and his grace and not around your power and your lordship, which is lousy and causes anxiety, but we frame it all around who he is. And then in that, he's allowed to bring us the peace that we so desperately need, right? So as we rejoice in Jesus's lordship, that first key point, as we rejoice in Jesus's lordship, we experience more of God's peace in our life. But now let's go back to that passage in Philippians 4, 6 to 7. And let's go ahead and read this next segment and see what Paul's saying. He's saying, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. We love this verse, do not be anxious about everything, anything right? We read it really fast like I just did. And we miss key parts like, like I often did. For a long time, I read this, just pray and quit worrying. Just pray and quit worrying. And that's not what it says. And so even over the last several months, I had to capture this, this um, piece of information that's on repeat through scriptures. Because what I missed was that word thanksgiving, it's so huge to me right now. When I see Thanksgiving in there, I, 
I really tune in on that. I focus. If you've been like me, most of your prayers to God are probably majorly majoring on complaints. Like we go to God with abundance of detail about the problem. And then sometimes we throw in a thank you like a kid would who received a pack of underwear on Christmas morning, right? Like, Lord Jesus, uh, you do not know what's going on with, with this bunion. It's, I mean, you know it's on my right foot, right? It's just under this spot and it really hurts. And we describe this bunion in so, so much detail and we really downplay thanks, thanksgiving in that, right? And so what happens is, according to Paul, when we pray this way, it doesn't enable us to walk in that peace that guards our hearts and minds, right? This is basically what Martha did in Luke 10. This is the, the kind of prayer Martha offered for, uh, for the dishes, right, or for the dinner. In Luke 10, verse 40, she prayed this way to God. Lord, well, she acknowledged his lordship. That's great. Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. No thanksgiving in that, huh? That's how she prayed. And that's often where we find our prayers to God in that they are extensive. We might take a lot of time to explain the situation to God as if he doesn't know it. We might major extensively in trying to justify why we're bringing a prayer request to God, but he doesn't need the justification. He loves us so much, right? We don't need to convince him to be good to us. Like, well, Lord, like he, he helped me out when my tire was, and he's just, he's such a sweet guy, right? But the Lord loves him way more than you, so you don't have to convince the Lord to share his goodness. That's not what God's telling us to do. He's telling us to pray and to give thanks, right? And those things that used to be capital P, capital R-A-Y, right? And really lowercase thanksgiving. And that's not what Paul is telling us. He's saying pray and give thanks. And they're both equal, right? And he's going to show us how to do this um, because giving thanks is essential. And, and let me also just say, we don't, when we give thanks to God, we don't give thanks because God needs it. Paul said as though he needed anything. In Acts 17, Paul's talking to a group of people about what God needs, and he goes, as though he needed anything. Like, God doesn't need our thanksgiving, right? He also doesn't require our thanksgiving to be kind and grateful or gracious. That's not how he works. He is good because he's good, not because we thank him, right? In Luke 6.35, we read this phrase, God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Like he's not demanding that people measure up to anything. He's just disposed to show mercy. He's kind. He's generous. It's how he is. So thanksgiving is not to change God. He doesn't change. Thanksgiving is what we add to prayer that guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. When we give thanks, we put our attention on his goodness, on his grace, and then that creates health in us. We give thanks for our own mental health. Conversely, when we complain, it does just the opposite. It breaks our, our mind, our mental health. It unsettled us when we talk about what's wrong, what's, what's bad, what things are going badly. And then we wonder, why is this happening, God? And God's saying, give thanks. Look around and see the good things that I've put in this world for you. 
It guards our heart and our mind. Now, Paul models this for us in Philippians 1, 3, and 6. And so I want to run over there and look at how he shows us because a good teacher is going to show you exactly what he's talking about. He starts the, the letter to the Philippian church. Verse 3. I thank my God every time. Hold on. Let me get that right. What's that say? Huh. I'm going to read that one. I thank my God every time I remember you in every prayer for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this. Now, he, he starts with, I thank my God all the time. Now, he's not thanking people because God didn't call us just to walk around and say thank you to people right? He called us to give him thanks. And Paul sees this Philippian church partnering with him. And though he probably said thanks, Paul's first thankfulness was to God. I thank my God every time I remember you in every prayer for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership. And here comes his prayer, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Because he starts with thanksgiving, he acknowledges what God's already done for the Philippian church. And because he's taken time to thank God for what he's done in the Philippian church, his prayer is, I know God's gonna do this for you. He's gonna carry this out because that's who he is. It changes the way he prays, right? So we pray with thanksgiving. What Paul said in in Philippians 4 first was, As we rejoice in Jesus' lordship, we experience more of his peace. But that second point is, as we pray with thanksgiving, we experience more of his peace. As we pray with thanksgiving, we experience more of his peace. And the final point in Philippians 4 is in verses 8 to 9. It says... Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you all. So now Paul's saying, listen, I know you're pursuing peace. So think about and behold these things. Paul's point is, as we behold Jesus' character, we experience more of God's peace. I mean, Jesus' character is true and lovely, and it's all of these, these commendable, it's, it's pure. These are God's character. This is how God is. So as we, as we think about and ponder who is Jesus, then we get to have the, the reward of this peace that we get to walk in. And the truth is that we probably spend a little bit more time thinking and talking about things like true crime podcasts than we do about the Word of God. And that has a huge impact on our daily walk with God, right? Look at Peter. His focus was on Jesus. He's walking on the water. His focus comes off of Jesus, and what happens? Starts to sink. God's grace extends in that, right? But ask Peter if your focus matters. Your focus and what you give your mind to absolutely matter. What we set before us constantly shapes our mindset. It shapes our beliefs. It shapes our words. It shapes our actions, right? You can't behold something evil or something unhelpful or something unfruitful and then turn around and live in God's kind of peace. That's just not how it works. It's just not made that way, right? When when, um, our kids were really tiny, 
we noticed that the kind of shows that they watched shaped their beliefs about the world, and then that shaped their words. There were a few innocent kid shows on TV where the adults were the dumbest people in the world, and the kids were brilliant. They were so smart, they solved every problem, and the adults couldn't tie their own shoes, right? And we could tell when our kids were watching those shows too much because in conversation with us, if they did something wrong or we had to correct them, they would start to respond to that correction just like the kids in the show. You would see them look to their peers to kind of get a little smirk, right? Or you might see them kind of side-eye us. That was not normal for our kids. They responded really well to us until they were watching and kind of just subjecting themselves to those. So we would have to help them pick different shows that would make life work, right? Similarly, um, I remember how much time I used to spend on talk radio. I mean, I would take it in uh, probably on the way home from work, uh, a steady diet of about half an hour a day. And wouldn't you know it, it affected what I thought about, it affected my peace and my understanding about the world, and it made me argumentative, right? Because that's kind of how that works, right? And I'm not saying give up talk radio, or, or I'm, what I'm saying is the big picture Paul is showing us is that how we subject ourselves, what we subject ourselves to is, is mostly it's our choice. And so pick those things that are wonderful for us, right? Now, Paul did this in, uh, in the scripture, and I want to show you how he did it. In Philippians, you may remember this story. Um, this is how Jesus grew the church in Philippi. So let me say that uh, you'll find this in uh, Acts 16, by the way. I want to separate this for you in case you're not familiar. Paul's right now, he's in Rome and he's writing a letter to the Philippian church. But years before, he was in Philippi and he was trying to spread the gospel there. And on that occasion, he also got arrested. Okay, he got arrested for spreading the gospel in that occasion. And here's how that story went. Paul and his buddy Silas, they're witnessing in the town of Philippi. And there was a young lady who was a slave and she was following them around and she had this demonic spirit of divination, right? Her owners marketed that spirit for their own profit. They kind of sold her talents as a fortune teller, right? So they needed her to have this, this demonic spirit of divination controlling her in order for them to make money. Well, it was tormenting, as evil spirits tend to be, it was tormenting her. It was kind of pulling peace away, right? So one day, as they're walking along, Paul commands that spirit to leave that girl and the spirit obeys him. The owners of the girl were angry, so they go to the magistrates and they have Paul and Silas arrested and they're thrown in, in jail, right? Um, they, before they're thrown in jail, they're beaten with rods. I think that's fair to, to add to the story. They were beaten with rods and then they were thrown in jail. Paul was a Roman citizen with rights at that point. He couldn't be arrested like that, but he said nothing. He didn't focus on what was wrong. He didn't focus on what was unfair or unlovely. The scripture says they put him in the inner prison. They put their feet in stocks and locked him in. So what did they do? Well, scripture says at midnight, they turned their attention to what was lovely and pure and good. They sang praise and hymns to God. They had no idea what was about to happen. They had no idea. They just decided to sing praise and hymns and think about this good God that they serve, right? 
what happened was there was an earthquake. All the chains fall off. All the prison doors open. The jailer is seeing this and going, well, I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be killed because I'm the one who's responsible for this and all these prisoners. They're going to escape. So the jailer, rather than being tortured by the Roman justice system, he decides to try and fall on his sword and kill himself. And Paul stops him. He goes, whoa, whoa, don't do that. We're all here. We're all here. And out of that, this jailer repents and he gives his life to the Lord. He gets saved and his whole family and he's added to the Philippian church, right? Now, think about what you and I would have probably done if we were thrown into a prison or what Paul could have done. I mean, he could have been in there going, hey, do you know who I am? I am the apostle Paul. Would you please, like, I'm going to put this in one of my letters and the whole world's going to read about it. You're going to let me out of here. He could have been in that place. He could have been angry. He could have been mad. He could have been, he could have done all those things. Now imagine if Paul and Silas were in there with their aluminum cup kind of ranking it on the rocks or the bars and just like demanding an attorney. Imagine what would have happened if they were in that place. Then there was an earthquake and the chains fell off and the doors bust open. Do you think they would have stopped the Philippian jailer? Do you think they would have stayed or would they have run out? Right? And so it is in these situations where what we see is God calling us to be in the middle of a rough situation, in the middle of a challenging situation, and he calls us to say, no, I see that you're in the middle of a rough situation. But what I want you to do here is to rejoice in my lordship. What I want you to do here is give thanks to God. What I want you to do here is put your focus on me. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. See, God calls us as his children to give our attention to his character and goodness all the time. Look at that passage one more time in Philippians 4, 4 to 9, and let's look at how it ends. What it says at the very end of Philippians 4 is that as we practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. Meaning that as we walk in that focus, the presence of God will become more aware of it. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So God will be with you must mean that Paul got to experience God being there because his attention was on God right? He would have missed it if his attention was not on God. So what now as we work through this? You might be thinking, man, well, I got I to gotta rejoice in Jesus as Lord. I got to give thanks. That's how I used to hear it all. I got to give thanks all the time, and I got to keep my focus on God. And I want to bring us right back to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, because I think what we need to understand is that when God calls us to something, he doesn't call, it, call us to it so that we can earn something, we can acquire something, we can, we can check off a box and make him happy. It's not like that. When God calls us to something, he empowers us, he draws us, and he even gives us his very own desire to do the thing. He gives us his desire to do the thing. So Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, one more time. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
See, our ability to submit to Jesus' lordship doesn't come out of us. It comes out of the humility and submission of Jesus going to the cross. We find the ability to submit to his lordship because he submitted to the cross. Our ability to give thanks to God, though, though so important, it's not innate. It's not in us to do it. We can't do it. We find thanksgiving when we look at the most beautiful Savior ever, and we fix our eyes on that, and we say, wow, look at how you supplied this. Look at how you provided that. You put me in a good church. You helped me, helped me to hear your word. You unfold things to me. You care for my child. Thank you. When we acknowledge his goodness that he's done, that changes us. But that starts with him. And we would have no good thing to behold if Jesus hadn't brought us hope for our future. There's nothing to look for, like, unless it's Jesus. So all of these wonderful things that bring us peace always start with Jesus. They always start with God working them into us. So if you're in a place of, of challenge and torment and you're just not at peace, you're just kind of miserable. You're just kind of like I, I had been for so long and I'm still kind of coming through that. But maybe you just, you're just seeing all, all the things that are wrong and you love God and God loves you and you're wondering how do I work through these things? Well, it's not just you, but the big idea for today is that the God of peace guides us so that we experience more of his peace in his life. God will take you from where you're at. You won't take you. God will take you from where you're at and he will move you into greater peace and it'll be true and it'll be real and it'll be so satisfying that you might be surprised that it was that good, right? So it took me ages to even unfold something as simple as Thanksgiving and how to do it. I mean, that's so basic, right? So as we walk with him, he unfolds these things before us. So let's look to Jesus as we focus on the love that entered our life and changed everything. Would you go ahead and stand with me? Let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your directions to us in Philippians. Thank you that you've gone through it all for us. You've lived the life that enables us to love you, that enables us to see your lordship and worship well to give thanks for all of your goodness that you've shown us. Lord, you're working in our lives now, and not just a little bit, you're working a lot. And so, Father, we just open up and surrender ourselves to that. We give you what we know how to give you, and what we don't know how to give you, we just ask and trust for your, we just trust your guidance, Lord God. And we're looking forward to those days and ways that you'll show us your peace in our daily life more and more and more. In Jesus' name. Amen.